Hello and a very warm welcome to Econoday Unplugged. It's Monday, 8th of January 2024. And on our first podcast of the year, we have Terry Sheehan on the US East Coast, Max Sato in British Columbia, Bron Jackson's in Sydney, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. So much like 2022, there can't be many forecasters not happy to see the back of 2023. But what about this year? Will it be a hard or soft landing? Will inflation keep falling? How much of the impact of the aggressive central bank tightening we've seen since early 2022 has still to feed through? And how much of a role will politics play in what will be a big year for elections? Well, at the risk of adding more egg on the face of a soothsaying community, in today's podcast, we'll have a go at identifying at least some of the key data, events and issues likely to be driving global financial markets over the coming 12 months. 2023 ended with a sharp rally in bonds and stocks, but this year has already started on a much more cautious note. Crucial to investor sentiment, of course, is the strong and widely held conviction that the Fed, alongside many other central banks, albeit not all of them, will soon be cutting interest rates and moreover will continue to do so over much of a year. Which takes us then to Terry. So, Terry, just how much pressure is there on the Fed to cut rates? And if he's going to do so as rapidly as financial markets have been assuming, what will it be watching most closely and what needs to happen? Well, that's a long list. Um, I think that markets are going to continue to show a lot of pressure to the Fed to cut rates sooner. I think the Fed policymakers are going to push back strongly. Um, I think that their underlying message of fighting inflation through restrictive monetary policy is not going to change, at least based on the current data. Uh, I think the earliest we can expect to see any kind of cuts in rates would be mid-year. I think when they come, they're going to be very cautiously implemented in 25 basis point increments. And I think that their current forecast for three rate cuts this year is probably about right. What needs to happen to ensure we get three rate cuts this year? Well, I think we have to see the inflation data come up down along the lines that the Fed policymakers are currently expecting. Right now, they're getting labor market data that's very much in line with what they've anticipated. We have a slowing, very modest, but he's slowing in hiring. Relatively few people are losing their jobs. The unemployment rate remains near historic lows. And those who are working are seeing modest rate or modest wage hikes. So overall, the labor market is not going to be something that the Fed needs to focus on as much as what's going on with prices. Okay. They will be looking at that non-housing services sector, which has been rather stubborn to respond to past rate hikes. Right. So there's lagging areas. Which those are parts of the economy which have been lagging in their responses to, to Fed policy. Fair enough. OK, let me also ask you, with regard to Fed policy, 
I mean, there are some folks who maintain that in the year of the presidential elections, um, the central bank is that much less keen to change interest rates in either direction. Do you think uh, come the, you know, ahead of November elections, that's going to have any implications for what the Fed does with interest rates? Actually, that's something I've gone over the Fed actions versus the timing of presidential elections mm-hmm. back for several decades. And the fact of the matter is the Fed will raise or lower rates if it looks like the economy needs that action, and they do it pretty much without regard for presidential elections. The only real accommodation they make is they make sure that they don't have an FOMC meeting announcement or an FOMC meeting in direct conjunction with Election Day. Okay, fair enough. That's good to know in the sake of independence. Um, without going to want to get too much into into the politics of it, do you think it matters for financial markets which side actually wins the election in the sense that, as I recall, if we go back to where well, it's 2016, wasn't it, when uh, Donald Trump took, it, took over um, in the White House, at the time, the view was that a Democrat win would probably lead to a looser fiscal policy, which would mean uh, that much of you know, that much faster growth out of the states, bigger chance of Fed raising interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. All good news for the likes of a dollar and so on. Um, but of course, when Donald Trump won, then almost immediately, we still had a rally in the stock market on the grounds that fiscal policy was still going to be loosened. So d- do you think it matters particularly who wins the election in terms of the implications of what fiscal policy might mean for U.S. economic growth over the next few years? Well, when... Donald Trump won in 2016. He was largely an unknown factor. We did not Mm -hmm. know what he would be like as president. Uh, We now have a much better idea. Um, And I think we can expect that if Donald Trump wins, there will be huge emphasis on tax cuts again. Uh, But if we have a Democratic majority in the House and or Senate, there's going to be a lot of pushback on that. Um, I think we can look forward to um, narrow majorities and a highly contentious situation, which we've had for the last several years. So it could be quite an interesting run up in terms of the actual elections themselves. Um, I guess almost lastly from my side, just in terms of, well, say fiscal policy, where do we stand now in terms of the debt ceiling and possible government shutdowns? Well, it sounds like they have an agreement in place uh, to avoid a shutdown, which would be a good thing. Whether they can get it through in time to avoid a brief shutdown or not uh, remains to be seen. But it sounds like if they do, it's going to be handled pretty quickly. Okay, that's got to be good news. And having said that was almost my last question. I'll obviously I'll ask you another one. Um, Main risk. Can I ask you um, which you think is more of a risk? Is it the case that we could have delayed reaction to earlier tightening from the Fed, which leads to a more rapid slowdown in economic um, activity or return to above target inflation? Well, I know we haven't quite got there yet, but you know, target moving further above inflation, I should say, due to the Fed cutting rates prematurely. I think the risk would be more that the Fed cut prematurely. Mm. Um, I think we see a lot of the impact of past rate hikes 
in the economic data right now. Uh, and I think the pause in the FOMC's rate cycle, which looks like it's going to be at its peak, uh, is an indication that they are being very cautious about adding more restrictive policy when it isn't needed. Okay. Anything else you'd like to put in in terms of sort of, you know, potential unknowns, the risk, or however you want to put it in terms of 2024? Well, it looks like 2024 is going to be the economic soft landing that the Fed really hoped to engineer with their uh, hikes and getting inflation under control. Uh, We can certainly hope so, but then there's always the exogenous event that puts shock into the system and changes the outlook. So, We're going to keep our eyes open. Excellent decision. Okay, great. Thanks for that, Terry. Max, let's have a look at Canada. I guess last year was all about inflation. If I remember rightly, it peaked just over 8% or so and has come down fairly significantly since then. Um, Are we at the stage now perhaps whereby the Bank of Canada could be amongst the first of the major central banks to cut interest rates? Um, I'm not sure about that because... um you know, compared to the U.S., maybe the uh, employment report wasn't um, so solid, but uh, wage pressure is still high, and that's the stickiest point. Um, the Bank of Canada is afraid of, you know, in the CPI coming down to around three percent is fine year on year, but uh, the path from there to um, all the way to two percent seems to be still bumpy, and. Mm-hmm. I don't think uh, the governor of um, the bank, the Bank of Canada, wants to um, leave any impressions that they're, they're ready to cut rates. And you know that, as you can see in the stock markets, or bond markets in North America, um, suggestions or um, um, the prospects and expectations actually do. Uh, a bit of a job of, you know, um, uh, soothing the uh, the markets and you know, economic outlook. So um, um, the housing market um, is already showing signs of, of recovery because uh, because of the shortage of uh, affordable housing housing overall anyway here in Canada. So I don't think they 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 want to. Um, remove the uh, reference to uh, they'll tighten if needed all right <clears throat> let me play devil's advocate here because that's always good fun um december the 15th we had the bank of governor um sorry the bank of canada governor macklem saying that to quote excess demand that drove prices higher over the past two years is now gone um as higher interest rates and tighter global financial conditions have helped the economy to rebalance We've also had you know, GDP pretty well, real GDP pretty well flatlining now for quite a while. I mean, GDP per quarter has been falling for the last, was it four or five quarters, whatever it is. And of course, next year, we're going to have the housing market hit by a significant, significantly higher interest rates for no Canadian households, which have got to remortgage. Do you think the BOC has got any real concern about what's going on, perhaps more on the real side of the economy than inflation? Or is it still all about inflation? I think they're looking at both sides of the um, story, and um, the governor has been really careful about uh, how to uh, describe the current situation. He's been mm-hmm. saying it's a very difficult, you know, uh, decision they have to make. You know, they they care about 
people losing jobs or um, household um, households um, still seeing um, elevated costs uh, for daily necessities. Right. And but then he has to make this uh, you know textbook uh, kind of a comment that you know in order to help the households and businesses they have to bring the inf- inflation down because if they let it stay high, then it's going to be it's going to take more interest rate hikes. So uh, I think they're really torn. Uh, the, the board is uh, governing council is really trying to uh, they they're hoping to see easing signs in uh, wage pressures and companies uh, pricing behavior. All right. Yeah, interesting. You say close call, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Trying, to, trying to pick the balance right. And it's okay. Well, anything else from your side on Canada in terms of big issues for 2024? Um, well, as you can see, uh, not many prime ministers uh, are popular in this world. So <laughs> I, I choose one. I don't yes. know, but uh, Trudeau, um, I I spoke to former government officials, and then they say Trudeau doesn't seem to care what he looks hmm. like in the eyes of the public. So he'll probably stay on, and there's no strong contender to lead the uh, Liberal Party. Um, so we'll see what happens to the uh, actual uh, approval ratings. Right. OK, so we'll get an eye on that one. Right. Let's move down to um, Asia then and, and Japan. Well, I don't know what we've been talking about, this this long awaited BOJ tightening throughout 2023. And you quite correctly have said, you know, wait for it. And there's still somewhere right around the corner. Are we now really any closer to it? And, and is it still wages that matter most to the BOJ? Um. The answer is yes to the to the latter point that you just mentioned. It, it, it's 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 not a, a dual mandate like in the U.S., but mm-hmm. uh, they've been tying the uh, achievement of a um, uh, two stable, sustainable two percent price uh, price target uh, to a substantial um, increase in wages and hopefully real wages. So. Um, you know, the, in the absence of actual data or you know agreement uh, between major companies and then trade unions, uh, they cannot move right now. Um, I think uh, the market expected some some had to um, to hedge and you know um, saying they may move in January, but because of the earthquake too, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I was going to ask you on that. There's a comment I saw which came out of the the bank governor. I think it's back at the back end of December, and brightly. Um, well, I wrote down in my notes um, to quote: "It's possible to make some decisions even if the bank doesn't have the full results of spring wage negotiations for for, for small and middle-sized businesses." I mean, is that the sort of comment you might expect him to make, or is that do you think something which might suggest they're starting to lean in the direction whereby they've almost decided they want to start tightening policy and they're trying to drip feed the market as they have done in you know, in previous actions you know, to get them ready for when they actually actually takes place i i think uh, the key is uh professor weather is a, a honest man you know like mm-hmm. um he's not a former government bureaucrat or career sentiment governor he was on the board uh, before but he he's he tries to he's trying to um um, tr- uh, how, how would I express? Uh, try to describe the situation in the, the clearest way, instead of um, using the communications to 
guide or lie about their intentions, um, what they're going to do. Like, you know, the, the biggest criticism of uh, his predecessor, uh, Crota, was uh, weeks before uh, the bank introduced the negative interest rate, he kept saying, mm-hmm. no, no, that's not good for Japan. But then right. when he came back from Europe saying, well, you know, I was actually impressed by what the, they're doing in Europe and we're going to introduce this uh, new policy tool. And then yeah. that really... Uh, left impression that he's a liar. So um, then compared to whether he seems to be, you know, he's more academic and um, he's an academic type. And I think uh, he's trying to uh, to be to to give the most up up to date uh, um, observation. But at the same time, I think his staff want him to. Uh, We've been some comments to, like you said, make the markets ready for what's going to happen because mm-hmm. it, it, it needs um, real uh, uh, shift in mindset. And I think Japanese people are getting ready for uh, actually uh, in the, the, the no, more normal world of, you know, the, there's an interest rate, you know. If, if you if you buy something or uh, borrow, then you have to pay a uh, uh, higher interest rate. Yeah. Mm. How do you set it without un- unsettling the markets too much, isn't it? Um, okay. Anything else on about Japan that we should be aware of this year? Um, I'm just looking at the Bank of Japan's uh, calendar, and mm-hmm. you know the, the key dates are April 25th, 26th, July 30th, 31st, October 30th, 31st. That's that's uh, when they released the uh, quarterly um, uh, outlook report. So that's uh, these are more appropriate times to say, okay, this is our latest uh, outlook for GDP, CPI, and then risk assessment. So that's that's these are the times uh, when they can actually convince people that they have to, uh, for example, um, end the um, negative interest rate policy. Um, and back to zero, and then eventually um, uh, finish the uh, yield curve control. And whether they have to keep uh, political developments in mind or not, um, they they would say they're not be they're not influenced by political uh, schedules. But as you can see, um, Kishida government's uh, approval rating has been declining. Mm-hmm lower and lower and because of the uh, political funding scandal and uh, public dissatisfaction with, uh, you know, like abrupt, you know, uh, that was a year ago, um, uh, plan to increase uh, defense spending and with all um, tax tax hikes. So um, the, the BOJ wants to avoid when for example, you know, the raising rates when um, the prime minister has to resign or they have to, you know, the prime minister has to call a general election. But we're past uh, midpoint two years, so uh, last October, and that means they, they still have time to uh, uh, see uh, the call the election or wait until the, the four-year term of the lower house, which is going to be October 2025. So, uh, they still have room to maneuver, and um, but then obviously uh, the Bank of Canada, sorry, Bank of Japan, under weather wants to start normalizing the uh, policy um, 
framework gradually. So something has to happen this year, yeah. I think. OK, another one. Watch this space, as they say. Many thanks for that, Max. Right. Let's go to Mr. Jackson and China. I don't know where you want to start, really, Bron, but I guess we can say what well, in the end, 2023 wasn't as bad as it could have been. But as, as you've talked about on previous podcasts, the data perhaps have been flattered, at least on a year on year basis, by some of the weakness we saw in 2022 caused by COVID. But I mean, where 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 does China go from here? I suppose the big question is, are policymakers taking what appear to be what deep rooted systemic problems seriously enough? I think under the surface they are, but um, you know the 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 actual public pronouncements that that come from Beijing don't really give a, a, a good indication, I think, of, of exactly what they might be considering um, mm-hmm. you know, behind closed doors. Uh, you know, you only have to go back a few weeks when we had the uh, you know the official data for November published. You know, we we have sort of a a big day of data every every month. And they, they didn't really let on to um, you know, serious concerns about the state of things. Um, they said uh, the, the national economy was or had, had good momentum and was turning for the better. And so um, no sort of indication that they're too concerned about how things are going or that they are planning a big shift in policy. We are, though, sort of in, in the middle of the, of the period where they, they do re-evaluate policy um, you know, they, they normally have a big meeting in December and then um, get ready to announce uh, growth and inflation targets and other sort of big policy changes at the big National Congress meeting in in March. So I think right now it's, it's a little bit too early to tell whether there will be um, you know, a major shift in, in uh, what policymakers want to do. It'll be more the, 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 big, uh, the big Congress uh, d- announcements uh, that come up in March. OK, fair enough. Um, can I ask about in terms of um, we did work about politics and trying to relate that to financial markets, I know. So perhaps it's an unfair question. But looking at some of these, you know, the capital flows going through markets, the third quarter, if I got it right for China, saw the first deficit on foreign direct investment, I think, ever or certainly very close for, for a very long time anyway, as it seems to be overseas companies now are becoming that much more reluctant to invest in China. Do you think that's a concern for the Chinese authorities or do you think they regard it as A, doesn't matter anyway because they're busy acquiring overseas assets or B, you know, we're going to do our own thing and you know, we're just continue down our own route? Uh Again, there'll be the, the difference between the, the public and, and what goes on behind uh, the mm-hmm. scenes. But, yeah, I, I, it's definitely striking. Um, uh, as you said, it's, it's an unusual event. And, and before we had the fall, you know, we had much lower gro- growth as well. So there definitely is a, a sense that, um, you know, foreign companies are uh, voting with their wallet and uh, not liking um, some of the the you know the, the trends and and um, outlook for the Chinese economy and that's that's um, an indication that you know officials will definitely uh, pay attention to you know obviously you know the Chinese economy has had all sorts of challenges in in recent years with COVID then you know the zero COVID policy mm-hmm. uh, the down in, in the property market so you could argue that okay maybe this is just reflecting some sort of short-term um, one-off events and that things will Will pick up, but what you are seeing, um, you know, from some of the, you know, the more uh, longer-term uh, and, and analyses that we we see around this time of year is just concerned that you know perhaps 
you know, the Chinese economy does have these sort of deep-seated structural problems that is going to, um, you know, persist for, for much longer than just, you know, any sort of short-term issues. You know, there's, there's obviously, uh, you know, large amounts of, of uh, debt for, for many of the, uh, the uh, regional governments. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, really no sign that the, the property market is going to turn around anytime soon. And sort of more fundamentally, um, you know, people are pointing to just the, the demographic issues, whether, whether that's going to um, uh, restrict growth going forward. And, you know, a lot of think pieces, you know, saying, or oh, perhaps China is, is going to have a, a lost decade like Japan did, you know, back in the day. And, um, you know, what, what does this say about, um, you know, the, the longer term uh, outlook for growth? So lots of, um, you know, I think, on the on the sidelines, a, a, a bit of pessimism about um, uh, uh, the the longer term outlook for China has has picked up as well. So that again is going to be a challenge for policymakers to try and address. Uh, you know, when March comes around and we have you know the the, the outlook for the whole year. All right. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one, isn't it? Um, right, before we ask you about Australia, just just quickly to touch again, I'm saying it, I mean, it's politics, but clearly we've got these elections in Taiwan next week, isn't it? I remember rightly. Um, yes. How important do you think that's going to be, given all this talk about, you know, the, the problems and, well, the yeah, the, you know, the ongoing political battle wills, if you like, between what's happening in China and what's happening in Taiwan at the moment? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's always concerns every time Taiwan has an election. Um, you know, uh, there's there's a lot of articles and a lot of uh, ink is spilled, uh, uh, you know, talking about the potential repercussions. Yeah. Um, and... You know, touch wood, we we haven't had any um, you know major uh, you know developments that result from these these elections uh, you know for for a long time now. Um, you know, we have had uh, Chinese government again reiterating its policy, and, and again that's nothing new. That um, you know that they're, they're very adamant in, in stating that policy in the, in the lead up to Taiwanese elections. Um, but uh, you know the, that that sort of understanding between. Uh, uh, Taiwan and China remains in place, um, and I think that will, you know, that's the that's the way to bet going forward that we won't see, um, um, you know, anything serious happen. But um, it, it's still always a, a bit of a nervous uh, time while we just wait to see what what the outcome of the, of the election is, and if there is a change in government, uh, what what the stance of the of the Taiwanese government will be um, uh, after an election. Yeah, right. Watch this space again. Okay, um, hit me with it, Australia. What are the big issues as far as 2024 is concerned? Uh, will inflation uh, fall quick enough? Uh, will we be able to avoid, um, you know, a, a serious slowdown in in the economy given the impact that uh, higher interest rates and the cost of living pressures are having on on the economy? Um, so yeah, that's uh, to be determined. Uh, just it's, it's a matter of waiting and see what what the data says. Definitely, um, you know. Lots of angst at the start of the year about um, cost of living pressures and um, the impact that that is having on households. And so, um, you know, we're going to have uh, a lot of pressure, I think, on the RBA to do something about that. And it's just a matter of, of you know, how they respond to it, particularly under, you know, the new leadership of the of the new. Uh, Michelle Bullock. Um, sorry, I was going to ask you, sorry, sorry, quick interrupt. I was going to ask you on yeah. that. So you, obviously you've got the new governor in there now. Does that have any yeah. implications for policy? I, I don't think so because she's she's the sort of uh, the internal candidate uh, when, when um, okay. he replaced him. So she's been around for a long time uh, sort of, you know, making the decisions that have been put in place. And so 
you know, she does represent uh, to, to a large extent stability in, in policy. So I don't think that will make a huge impact. It will still just continue to be based on, on, on the data and their assessment of the outlook. Um, that said, there, there are changes though coming uh, to the RBA this year, which will be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, last year, these changes were announced and now they're going to be happening. Um, mainly just sort of in, in the process of uh, monetary policy. So um, as people may know, uh, usually uh, yeah, before now we've had um, basically monthly meetings except for January. So 11 meetings per year. That's been cut back now to eight meetings um, a year starting this year. Um, so basically every sort of six weeks or so. Um, and um, the, the, so the idea behind that is to you know, give officials a, a bit more time to, to go uh, in, in depth between meetings, analysing whether there does need to be a change in policy settings. The, the meetings are also going to take a little bit longer. They'll um, start on Monday, finish on Tuesday. And the other big, um, the, the other big change is that there will be a, a bit more transparency around those meetings. There's going to be a, a press conference uh, from the governor you know, an hour or so after each meeting. So that'll be interesting just to give um, people an opportunity to, to grill the governor uh, about uh, what, what officials are thinking straight after the meeting. So that, I, you know, I think that will be uh, quite interesting and, and quite well followed by the markets. Hmm. Okay, excellent. Anything else on Australia? Uh, anything else? No, uh, just, you know, just the, the, the point about, um, you know, when, you know, we were talking before about, uh, you know, the Fed and um, when they might start cutting rates, that obviously is also starting to right. get a little bit more attention uh, when, when, we'll, when we might actually see a cut by the RBA. Uh, the consensus view uh, amongst the economists at the moment is that um, we will see a cut around the end of the year, so September or a little bit later. Um, and, you know, looking, you know, there's so still a, some way away then. Oh yes, yeah. It's people are still expecting it's going to be towards the end of 2024, and a lot of people uh, do not uh, see a rate cut at all. So, um, you know, just looking at the the range of forecasts out there, there's there's quite a few people who don't have anything penciled in for this year, but the median um, forecast uh, is for just one uh, towards the end of the year, uh, and then another. Uh, three over the course of 2025. So um, nothing too uh, drastic in terms of uh, of unwinding that policy tightening that uh, has taken place over the last you know, 18 months. Hmm. Which could make for uh, potentially presumably good year as far as Aussie dollar is concerned. Um, yes, Right, you mentioned some say some changes to the RBA. I notice right what we've had the going across the water to New Zealand. Um, the National Party led a coalition after what October's election, wasn't it? They amended the RB, RBNZ remit in December to just well stick with an inflation target and remove the objectives to support maximum sustainable employment. Has this got any big implications? The fact that they've shifted from the kind of Fed-style dual mandate just to having a simple inflation target. I mean, on the margin, it could, but. Um... Yeah, you know, my, my my impression of the RBNZ is that um, you know that they always take you know all the the major um, uh, economic variables in, into consideration when they're when they're choosing when they're uh, making making policy, and um, so you, there, there could be circumstances I guess where uh, um, 
you know, there is quite a, a discrepancy between what uh, the inflation uh, target would have them do and what, what the um, employment target would have them do. So to, to the extent that you, know, you are no longer paying attention to the employment target, that could have a bit of an impact. But in, in practice, I don't think it will um, make it make a huge difference. They're still very much um, uh, dealing with the with the fact that inflation is, is well above where they would like it to be, whereas um, yeah, the, the employment numbers are probably a, a bit closer to where they, they'd want them to be anyway. So I don't think that's going to make a huge difference. It's still going to be um, you know, what do we need to do to get inflation lower? Um, uh, and so I think that will still be the main the, the main focus going forward. Okay, great. Um, right, I know, so you cover quite a lot in your area, but last one, <clears throat> excuse me, last piece I wanted to ask you was regarding India. I know in the last podcast you were pretty well kind of talking up India in terms of prospects for 2024. Again, I mean, I hate talking about politics, but we got these elections in, what, April and May coming up, haven't we? Um, yeah. Do you think they're going to be important in the way investors perceive you know, India as an investment country uh, for 2024, 2025? Uh, I, I suspect no matter what the result, uh, you know, that, that positive sort of uh, outlook for, for investors will remain. I, I, to be honest, I don't know too much about, um, you know, the, you know, the, the, the opposition uh, party's platform on, on economic policy. I, I don't think it'll be that much different from, from the incumbent party uh, in terms of, um, you know, continuing on um, with opening up uh, parts of the Indian economy to foreign investors, uh, yeah, mate, you know, retaining a good relationship with the Reserve Bank of India. Yeah, I, I wouldn't expect, you know, uh, a big change in, in sort of fiscal responsibility going forward as well. So um, I think the, the, the you know, the, um, the, the outlook is, is pretty much going to be uh, the same no matter what the results of the election are um, on a sort of long-term framework but you know obviously there could be a, a bit of short-term volatility if, if we get a, a unexpected result at the moment um my understanding is that most of the opinion polls are showing that uh, prime minister modi will be uh returned to office after those elections but obviously we'll we'll get um more information as we get closer to april may uh but yeah i i think um yeah the rbi has has a pretty good record of of being able to uh um, you know, continue on with its job despite any sort of volatility that's going on in, in the political sphere. Okay, excellent. Any else from your side? No, that's it. Sounds good. Okay, brilliant. Okay, many thanks for that, Brian. Let's wrap this up then with some uh, euro. What do we got? Well, as far as eurozone's concerned, then. For the ECB, it's still really all about inflation, but I would guess in terms of looking at the numbers with added emphasis on the core rates rather than the headline numbers. Um, it was well, not surprising by any means, but interesting that we had the, def, uh, the flash December data out the other day, and that showed a, a jump in the headline rate up to 3.9% from 2.4%, which might get people thinking, oh, perhaps they won't be cutting rates after all, but the core rate was down to 3.4 from 3.6%. And it's very much just a simple reflection of the fact that you know, energy markets had such a huge impact on inflation, headline inflation rate in Europe, and indeed as it did the rest of the world during last year, and it's going to have a similar impact on the 2024 as well. So it's going to be the underlying rates that the central bank, European Central Bank will be focusing upon much more closely 
In terms of the real economy, well, uh, the eurozone economy itself, strictly speaking, isn't in recession at the moment in a sense that we haven't had two uh, quarters of negative growth. But we know that the third quarter contracted and to all intents and purposes from what we've seen on the data so far for the fourth quarter of last year, it looks as if that will carry a negative handle as well. And one of the big issues, I guess, really it is a big watch as far as 2024 is concerned, will be Germany. Germany's had a, a really rough 2023. Uh, the manufacturing sector has been hit extremely badly, both by the weakness of global demand, but also with the weakness of domestic domestic demand as well. The German consumer sector has been hit particularly badly by um, high rates of inflation, at least by German standards anyway, and concerns about the the budget deficit in Germany. Worth noting that um, we had uh, plans from the administration to try and reallocate some of the what I think is about 60 billion euros worth of COVID-19 lows to reallocate them towards climate protection. Um, And that was overruled by the Supreme Court, which essentially means in terms of fiscal policy in Germany, there's a whacking great hole at the moment in the government's budget plans that needs to be filled, needs to be filled under their own stability program uh, rules, which means that Germany, if anything, is going to suffer another period of potential austerity, at least some form of austerity anyway, at a time when the real economy is already struggling. So although clearly Germany being the biggest Eurozone economy needs watching just as a matter of course, um, it's going to have a particularly big impact, I think, in terms of the overall shape of the Eurozone growth in terms of 2024. More generally, though, uh, in terms of you know, you have the policymakers at the ECB, a um, bit like Max was talking about with Japan and wages and indeed Bank of Canada and wages, wages also a major focus as far as the ECB is concerned. There's around, what, 40 to perhaps 50 percent of all European employees will be settling new wage agreements uh, at the start of this year. Now, the data probably won't be fully available to the policymakers until perhaps what May or June time, something like that. So the hawks on the ECB will certainly be wanting to defer any interest rate cut until they know what's happening to these settlements. Um, And I guess it's still probably the case at the moment and perhaps financial markets are getting a little bit overly excited about the pace at which interest rate cuts might be delivered from the European Central Bank in 2024. I think now having worked so hard to get inflation back down to current levels, the ECB, like many other central banks, will be loath to give anything away and they're prepared pre- be prepared to perhaps in some ways to keep interest rates a little bit higher for too long rather than cut interest rates too too quickly and see in- and see inflation start moving back up again and it's worthwhile noting i suppose that in terms of the the current disinflation part that the ecbs assumes and that's based on its own sort of financial conditions assumptions and so on is significantly involves significantly less policy easing than what the markets are currently anticipating so in other words, if the markets you know, proved right in terms of interest rate reductions on the ECB's own uh, models, it would suggest that inflation would end up far too high again and back above target. So in other words, there's upside risk in terms of market, um, at what the market is currently discounting in terms of interest rates for inflation. So again, it, it sort of suggests at least in terms of ECB thinking, which of course may be wrong anyway, but in terms of ECB thinking, it's kind of a, they do believe that financial markets too aggressive in their expectations for interest rates. 
Elsewhere in Europe, well, obviously we talk, we talk about the war in Ukraine, which is ongoing desperately. Um, and it's only one guess, I suppose, as to when that's finally going to finish. But obviously that's an upside risk in terms of prices and indeed on budget deficits across Europe as well. Also, in the context of fiscal policy, 2024 sees the return of the Growth and Stability Pact, which was suspended due to uh, COVID, of course. This lays down the rules that for on uh, debt and budget deficit that the Eurozone members are supposed to achieve um, over the medium term. So that actually means some revisions in terms of that, um, but it still essentially means that for this year, the aggregate fiscal stance across the Eurozone should be contractionary. Um, and that really is just going to reflect uh, well, what almost amounts to a complete phase out of the remaining energy related measures uh, which uh, were involved during COVID. And I guess that at least if nothing else, we've got fiscal policy now helping the ECB in terms of helping to pave the way for it to lower interest rates. The other big watch in terms of uh, the continental Europe this year, I suppose, will be the EU parliamentary elections. They're due, they're due uh, between the 6th and the 9th of June. As things currently stand, it looks as if the Eurosceptic populists uh, will be um, securing their best ever results. But in terms of what the current opinion polls are saying, it still looks as if the existing coalition of what centre-right, liberal, social democrat and green groups, um, they're still expected to retain an overall majority. Still, it could be, you know, with growing populist and economic pressures in most of the 27 members of the European Union, it's going to complicate decision making, almost certainly what comes out of these parliamentary elections. And that could be a bit of a worry as far as international investors are concerned. What is certain, though, is that there won't be any expansion of the, the euro currency in 2024. If people remember, Croatia joined at the beginning of 2023 to, to make it a 20 member block currency. But of the seven uh, 27 EU members still to join the currency, some likes of Bulgaria have yet to meet the convergence criteria and others like Denmark, what, Hungary, Sweden as well. They all remain reluctant to do so. So at least in terms of euro itself, it's going to remain still uh, the 20 member currency as it is at the moment. Elsewhere in Europe, in terms of the UK, um, if we believe the latest numbers, recession might have been avoided in 2023. Well, it's still very much a possibility after revised down at the third quarter growth numbers. Um, and either way, it's certainly something that the UK government won't want to see ahead of what is very likely to be a general election in the UK in 2024. So when we get the March budget, expect that to be loose, to be loose uh, and almost certainly we see some tax cuts coming through there, which could certainly bolster the UK economy and also leave the Bank of England that much more um, cautious about the speed in which it cuts interest rates. And indeed, on that front, I mean, 2023 was a pretty dreadful year for monetary policy. Uh, the core CPI, core inflation in the UK, hit a record 7.1% last May, and it's 5.1% at the moment, at least that's as of November, the latest data. So that's still, what, two and a half times or so uh, the medium term target. So I think in terms of the MPC, the Monetary Policy Committee, they really are quite desperate to restore some sort of credibility to policy. And that will probably mean delaying rate cuts until after the lights, I guess, of the Fed and the ECB move. And again, that might be another factor supportive of sterling. So although the actual economic numbers in terms of the real economy for the UK might not, too, might not look too clever, 
in terms of potential interest rate differentials, given what's likely to happen to fiscal policy um, ahead of the election and what the bank will probably be, the Bank of England will probably be doing, uh, interest rate differentials may well work in favour of the pound. Um, in terms of the Bank of England, what they're looking at, as I think we've touched on on previous podcasts, is a, a bit of a quagmire for them in the sense that the labour market data, as the Office for National Statistics admits, are now just downgraded to experimental because they've had so many problems with their surveys. So I think it's worth noting you know, some of the reports which the Bank of England itself puts out. So we have the, the quarterly um, bank agent surveys which come out. As mentioned, they're quarterly announced at the same time as the MPC, made, MPC meeting announcement um, on those dates. So keep an eye on them. And also the bank's so-called decision makers panel data, which doesn't always get a lot of attention, but the bank asks um, these um, chief financial officers, see something if I can say it, chief financial officers from around two and a half thousand or so firms about what's expected in terms of prices and wages, as well as current conditions. And that's the kind of input which the MPC takes extremely seriously. So if they do have problems with the labour market stats, it could well be some of these sort of, you know, the bank's own survey data that help to determine as and when and if they're actually going to come out and change interest rates. So I would certainly recommend having a look at them. In terms of election, that has to be held by the 28th of January 2025. The latest coming out of Downing Street is that uh, Prime Minister um, Rishi Sushak um, prefers second half of 2024. That's all he's prepared to say at the moment. But with some people noting that the upcoming budget has been set for the 6th of March, which is a little bit earlier than usual, you know, there is some speculation that it might come a bit sooner. Uh, personally speaking, I think looking at opinion polls, the Conservatives are so far behind that it's more than likely going to leave it as late as possible in the hope that something will come out which actually gives them a boost in the polls. In terms of the election itself, um, I said in previous years, you know, the investor view has always been that a Labour government would be um, unfriendly to businesses, so probably negative for the likes of sterling and the equity market. Um, from what we've had coming out more and more from the Labour Party over the course of the last six months or so, they do seem to be adopting a much more friendly business stance, which is a positive. They've also reiterated crucially that the Bank of England's independence would be retained, and indeed the Office for budget responsibility, the OBR, which provides the economic and financial forecasts, which go into the budget projections, that would also be protected as well. So I suspect as an outset, the idea of a Labour government, which perhaps in previous times might have been uh, caused a few wobbles in terms of UK financial markets, should not necessarily perhaps be the case this time round. Um, let me quickly round off from my side in terms of Switzerland. Of course, the Swiss franc has been a star of the currency world for some time now. Buoyed since, what, 2022 by capital inflows caused by the war in Ukraine and more recently uh, by, of course, uh, the Middle East developments. However, it's worth noting that you know, the Swiss National Bank in December uh, pointed out that uh, although I mean, it's still willing to intervene in the FX markets to, to try and keep the currency market stable, uh, it wouldn't be conducting foreign exchange sales anymore to reduce its balance sheet, which has been part and parcel of its policy for a while now. Now, that may mean that it's kind of a backhanded signal that current levels of a Swiss franc are about as hard as they want to see. So should we see interest rates, falling interest rates general, generally trigger a shift into sort of a risk on investing? We might see the um, Swiss franc actually start to struggle a little bit. And indeed, should the war in Ukraine end soon 
sooner than anticipated, that could also put some downside pressure on the franc. So for the time being, at least, clearly Swiss franc is still very strong, but at least potentially there's some uh, you know, developments in the calendar during 2024, uh, which could lead to so, uh, to some downside potential. Round off then, what else we should be watching? Well, um, between the well, the four of us, we've talked a little about elections and there are a lot of them around the world in 2024. In fact, if you look at the overall schedule, if the numbers are right, there's close to um, what voters in around about half the world's population will be voting during the course of 24 in the, in the main election. So it makes it potentially the most important year ever for politics. Um, and that, of course, means it's going to be a major test for democracy. And, of course, a potential trigger, if you believe the polls, for a shift to more populist or nationalistic policies. And that, of course, could mean a return or a boost to current trade tensions, in turn dampening perhaps growth or, or boosting inflation prospects. So what comes out of these elections could be important for uh, investor sentiment during this year. Commodity markets, of course, we haven't really talked too much about oil. And to be perfectly honest, I think it's anyone's guess as to where oil's going to go. I mean, last year we saw a first down year for US oil prices since 2020. Uh, and that was really due to uh, worries about oversupply. Um, despite the fact we saw you know, some fairly significant cutbacks coming through from OPEC. What will be worth watching there, I think, is that although we've got this ongoing political risk in various parts of the world, not least amongst the oil producers, uh, the likes of what US, Brazil, Guyana, they're all producing crude oil at a record pace at the moment. So it does seem that there's going to be a growing emphasis on the importance to the uh, supply um, of production from the likes of the US and other Atlantic Basin countries. And so to keep an eye on them because it may mean that the impact of OPEC on oil prices over 2024 and going further beyond that is going to be less than we've been used to in the past. And of course, you know, Brian was talking about China. Well, what happens to Chinese demand given the amount of oil they suck in is going to be hugely important. Climate change, you could spend a whole podcast on that, but it is worth noting that the drought we've already seen has um, forced some restrictions in the Panama Canal. That's led to uh, reductions in capacity limits and longer waiting times. Traffic, of course, going through the Suez Canal. That's been facing escalating terrorist attack from the Iran-backed Houthi rebels, all of which means longer delays and higher costs for deliveries. I mean, in fact, I mean, weather patterns everywhere clearly have become increasingly volatile. So, yeah, really no matter where you live, it seems that there's implications for flooding and or drought. And that's going to have some sort of impact on economic activity and prices in general. All in other words, adds to what is inevitably the usual highly uncertain outlook facing investors and policymakers alike, as we have at the start of each year. And I guess that is just about the most appropriate note on which to end today's podcast. But whatever happens, remember, you can always keep up to date with all the key market data and sort of all the key moving market data and events in a Conaday's global economic calendar. And with that, after this diatribe, uh, the Conaday team would like to wish all a happy, safe and, of course, profitable 2024. I'm half Terry, Max Braun and me. Thank you, as always, for listening. And we look forward to talking to you all again very soon. Bye for now.